do turn to Mark chapter 2, Mark's Gospel chapter 2, page 837, if you're using the church Bibles. Incidentally, just uh, an update on Stuart Cashman. There was some good news yesterday that came through from Mariel that he's, he's doing much better, uh, for which we thank the Lord. Um, also, Yosri Gobri, uh, one of our mission partners, has just lost his brother. He's just flown, I think, yesterday to Egypt. Um, so do pray for Yosri. Well, if you've just joined us today and haven't been with us in Mark let me just remind us that we're looking at the opening section of Mark, which is up to 3.12, which highlights Jesus' identity. Look at that very opening phrase of Mark's gospel, the beginning of the good news or the origins of the, of the great news of Jesus' Messiah, Messiah King, Son of God. Such good news for our messed up world. And Mark then adds the testimonies of the ancient prophets, of John the Baptist, and of God the Father and the Spirit of God himself as to who Jesus is. God come down to earth. And then the first thing that strikes us about Jesus as he begins his work is his authority, demonstrated in his call on the lives of individuals, his teaching and preaching. No one ever taught like he taught and his power over the evil forces of the enemy. And the second thing that strikes us is his clear priority to put the teaching and preaching, the spread of the message of God's reign over above the pressing material needs for healing, which are all around. And of course, that priority is made all the more striking by the fact that he could heal anyone of anything effortlessly and instantaneously. But his default setting was to teach and preach, as we'll see in our reading in a moment. But here in chapter 2, we hear a new sound, the strident notes of opposition. Now, Jesus was tested by the enemy in the desert, but this is human opposition. And you know, it comes from a most unlikely source. It comes from the people who made it their business to study the scriptures, the scripture teachers or scribes as they're translated here. So chapter two, verse one, Jesus has been for some time out in the desert having to escape from attention because of the leper disobeying him. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door of the house that they were in. And he was preaching the word to them, literally just speaking the word to them. Here's his priority again. And some people came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they couldn't get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they'd made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now, remember, houses had flat roofs in those days and staircases up the side. So this is a flat roof, maybe a terrace. Yes, the people underneath, I suspect, got showered with dirt uh, as this happened. And I imagine Jesus had to stop teaching at this point. 
while the various sort of beams and overlay and earth was removed. And then down in the middle comes this man right in front of Jesus, this paralyzed man. Verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes, that's the teachers of the law, the Old Testament law, were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Jesus went out again beside the sea, the Sea of Galilee, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. There's his priority again. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. Now, what is a man called Levi, probably Matthew, doing sitting at a tax booth on the edge of the Sea of Galilee? Answer, the main motorway, if you like, from Alexandria, North Egypt, right up to Damascus, capital of Syria, went right past the edge of the Sea of Galilee. And as any sensible person knows, if the big road goes through your territory, you charge customs duties on all goods transported. So this was a great place to collect tax. So that's probably what was going on. He's on a tax booth on the motorway, so to speak. Jesus said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Levi reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed Jesus, many of these people. And the teachers of the law, the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, a doctor, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you esteem, you value those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at your word. May we be such today, for Jesus' sake.
Amen. So what is your greatest need? What is every human being's greatest need? Is it better education, more education, better health care, change of government, change of government policy? Is it more money or a growing economy or at least protection from the cost of living crisis? Is it peace instead of war, especially at the moment in Ukraine? Is it a happy family or getting married or having a happy marriage or having more friends or better friends or some friends? Now, all of these things are good things, but they are not our greatest need. Mark is so clear in the way he records the passage we just read, that number one, and this is our first point of three, forgiveness of sins is our greatest need. It's a very simple message. Forgiveness of sins is our greatest need, verses one to five. When you try and think back into the situation of that group of people meeting in the, in the house that was crammed to hear Jesus teach and, and this extraordinary interruption and the, and the roof dug open and the man lowered down in front of Jesus, clearly a paralytic. It seems so strange to us for Jesus to miss the man's obvious first need for physical healing. And yet this is so important for us to get clear that, that Jesus' response to their act of faith was verse 5, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, it may be that the man on the stretcher wondered if his sin had caused his paralysis. We're not told. But either way, Jesus is making a powerful and provocative point. He's saying this is the man's greatest need. He's got an obvious physical need for healing, but this is his greatest need. This takes priority. His paralysis, unhealed, will at worst have a negative impact on him for the rest of his few days on earth. But his sins, unforgiven, will have a catastrophic impact on him for eternity. Now, you may have a small leak, say, in the roof of your house, which needs to be fixed. You can see the drip. You think, we need to fix that. But what if the house in which you live is actually beside the sea and the erosion of the shoreline has, has reached the point where it's undermining the foundations of your house and your whole house is about to collapse into the sea? To make fixing the leak a priority would be crazy. You've got to do something much more important first. You need to know what your greatest need is and to address it first. And the scriptures are crystal clear that our greatest need is to be forgiven by the God whose authority we naturally flout or at best ignore. Do you remember how we learned that the great sin is to say, the great sin in the world, the great sin in human history is to say about Jesus, the Son of God and Messiah, not my king. No, I will make the rules for my life, thank you. I'll be the judge of whether or not I'm acceptable to God. 
For Jesus is so clear, we read it later on, just flick over to chapter 7, verse 20. Jesus is very clear that, that by nature we are not acceptable to God. Why not? Well, have a look at chapter 7, verse 20. Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. That is to say, makes him unacceptable to God. For from, from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. And these thoughts lead, lead to all kinds of, these evil thoughts lead to, and here's a great long list, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evils come from within and they defile a person. They make them unacceptable to God. And that's the diagnosis of our heart, the human heart. And the reality is that's what every single heart of every single person here is like, the truth be told. And every single person we meet in the world, that is what their heart is like. It's got evil thoughts churning up like a factory of evil, producing these things constantly, 24-7. And that's not the worst of the news. The worst of the news is that if we don't change things, we will face God's stern judgment and find ourselves banished and destroyed forever. Now, people don't like to hear that. You and I don't like to hear that, but that is the truth that the Bible teaches. Now, I'm well aware that some Bible Christians will tell you that this is all too negative to talk like this. Well, let me read what I think is a wonderful section from a letter that was written by John Newton, author of Amazing Grace, to a Mr. B. We're not told what his full name was. He was Mr. B something. On November the 23rd, 1774. Let me read an extract from it. And I think we can tell from what I'm about to read that John Newton had been a Christian, having been, do you remember previously, a slave trader? He'd been a Christian about 20 years. And he's talking about when he first became a Christian. Quotes. At my first setting out, I thought to be better and to feel myself better from year to year. I expected by degrees to attain everything which I then comprised, that is understood, in my idea of a saint. I thought my grain of grace, by much diligence and careful improvement, would in time amount to a pound. He's talking about weight, weights that are getting bigger and bigger. That that pound in a farther space of time to a talent, a bigger weight, and then I hope to increase from one talent to many. So that supposing the Lord should spare me a competent, a competent number of years, I pleased myself with the thoughts of dying rich, spiritually speaking, that is. But alas, these my golden expectations have been like South Sea dreams. Do you remember the South Sea bubble? Dreams of great return on your investment, and it was all lost in the South Sea bubble. So great investment, but actually comes to nothing. Quotes, I have lived hitherto a poor sinner, 
and I believe I shall die one. Have I then gained nothing by waiting upon the Lord? Yes, I have gained that which I once would rather have been without, such accumulated proofs of the deceitfulness and desperate wickedness of my heart, as I hope by the Lord's blessing has in some measure taught me to know what I mean when I say, behold, I am vile. And in connection with this, I have gained such experience of the wisdom, power, and compassion of my Redeemer, the need, the worth of his blood, righteousness, attention, and intercession, the glory that he displays in pardoning iniquity and sin, and passing by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage, that my soul cannot but cry out, who is a God like unto thee? Thus, if I have any meaner thoughts of myself and any higher thoughts of him than I had 20 years ago, I have reason to be thankful. Every grain of this experience is worth mountains of gold. Now, I'd love to go on, but I think that's quite enough. But isn't that brilliant? That there he is, 20 years a Christian, and he has discovered in that 20 years not great advances in his own understanding of how holy and pure and blameless he is, but great advances in understanding how deceitful his heart is, how wicked he is in, inside. And yet at the same time, balancing that, and more than balancing that, compensating that, is his discovery of how wonderfully gracious and compassionate God is, and how the provision of forgiveness through the death of Christ is worth well, it's mountains of gold, isn't it? Every grain of this experience is worth mountains of gold. Is that your experience too, if you call yourself a Christian? That the longer you go on, the more you discover how awful you are inside and how wonderful it is that God should still accept you, should still love you, and still invite you into his home for eternity. Just one last thing from John Newton. Do you remember when he was old? He's reputed to have been, uh, to have said this, that he said, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great savior. And you see, this changes our whole perception, doesn't it, of, of ourselves? And it changes our perception of those around us. Because we live in a, a very affluent part of London, don't we? Where people are very together on the face of it. And yet, however educated or charming or popular or successful people may be, we see them through a different lens. We see them through the lens of Scripture. We see them as sinners who need to be forgiven. That is their greatest need. And we long that their eyes will be opened. Now, our second and third points are shorter than our first point. You'll be encouraged to hear. But our greatest need is the forgiveness of sins. But the second thing, and this is such an encouragement, isn't it, is that the forgiveness of sins is within Jesus' power. That great reading we had from Daniel 7 where Jesus, uh, the, the language of the Son of Man is, is, is spoken of, who's given authority 
dominion is the word that's, that's used there. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which Mark would certainly have read, it's the same word that he uses here for authority of Jesus, to translate what Jesus is talking about, presumably in, in Aramaic when he said it in the synagogue in Capernaum. So verse 6, now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say? And of course, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because you've no idea if it happened or not. It's harder to say, get up and walk to a paralytic because you'll instantly be shown as someone who either does or does not have the power to do what you say. And so Jesus, to show that his word has power to forgive, shows that his, his word has power to raise up the paralytic. paralytic. Now, Jesus is clearly claiming to forgive the man's sin. He's not just saying God can do it. That's what so upsets the Jewish scripture teachers. And of course, they're absolutely right in verse 7 when they say, who can forgive sins but God alone? He's the only one who can forgive sins. And then Jesus does this test. Now, I love this because there's a falsifiability that Jesus opens himself up to. And you know, it's one of the reasons I'm a Christian. Because Christianity is a falsifiable religion. Let me put it that way. Or to focus that, if you were able to prove to me beyond reasonable doubt that the body of Jesus, his remains, was still in a grave in Palestine, in Israel. And it was definitely Jesus' remains. I would give up my faith that very day. Because the whole thing is based on the truth of the claim that Jesus rose bodily from the grave. And if that is not a true claim, then we're wasting our time. The whole idea that there is life after death, that Jesus is coming back, that he's the Son of God, that our sins are forgiven, that is out of the window. So it's important that we understand that. And Jesus here is, is setting himself up for falsifiability, that it can be proved that he's false. But it's also verifiable. So when he says to the paralytic, fold up your stretcher and go home, instantly, within seconds, the crowd can tell that it's true. It's true what he said. It's verifiable. What an encouragement to know that Jesus has the power to forgive sins. And of course, it indicates, as we were thinking earlier, that he really is the one who has God's authority. He's equal with God. That reading in Daniel 7 has an extraordinary connotation that God seems to be giving authority to the son at one like a son of man, which is his own authority. How can that be? And it was a passage that the Jews of Jesus' day didn't quite make sense of. They, they didn't quite see it as, it was sort of messianic, but it wasn't like saying you were the son of David. 
definitely claiming to be in the line of the Messiah. So Jesus uses this term of himself time and again. It didn't have that nationalistic connotation that would have distracted him from the path that he was taking. But it's a very powerful thing to claim to forgive sins. I remember doing Christianity Explored in Dublin, and one of the um, participants one time was a, a young Muslim woman from the Middle East. And when we got to that point in the course where you ask the participants, you know, what is the thing that has most impressed you about Jesus? The question, the answer that people gave who were from a Western background was normally something along the lines of, well, he raised the dead, or he stilled the storm, or he fed the 5,000, or something like that. She said, well, it's obvious. I remember thinking, hmm, interesting. Uh, chapter 2, she said, he claimed to for he forgave sins. Now, I'd never heard that answer. I'd done it for years, this course. I'd never heard that answer. And I said, why do you say that? And she said, well, only God can forgive sins. And I remember thinking, ah, oh, that's the mindset that was there in that house when Jesus healed the paralytic. Well, only God can forgive sins. But it's a wonderful truth that Jesus can. Final encouragement, number three. Jesus loves to call sinners to follow him. Jesus makes a beeline for the riffraff, the dregs of society, the, the outcasts, the kind of people that the religious and the respectable try to avoid like the plague, the kind of people that you and I actually try and avoid like the plague. Truth be told. So Levi, we must understand, was an outcast, a collaborator with the hated occupiers. It wasn't like, so what's your job, Levi? Oh, I work for the Inland Revenue. Oh, that that's, sounds very boring. Um, no, it wasn't that at all. It's, you work for the Romans. Huh, spit. I'm not going to talk to you. You're in league with the occupier who's invaded our country, who tramples upon us, who's ruined our economy, etc., etc. So people who were tax collectors in those days were banned from the synagogue. They wouldn't be in church this morning. They'd have been stopped at the door. They were classed with thieves and murderers in Jewish law. And these sinners were probably, you know, the gamblers and the prostitutes. And what's Jesus doing with them? That's the question of the religious. And yet, Jesus, what's he doing with them? Verse 15, he's reclining at table with them. He's eating a meal with them. He's having fellowship with them. And it says there were many, who followed, many of them who followed him. It's a striking phrase at the end of verse 15. Many of them followed Jesus. And Jesus did not dissociate himself with them. On the contrary, he mixed with them on purpose and deliberately and regularly. And maybe that's you. You feel like Levi, you feel like someone who's a bit of a leper or a tax collector or a sinner, an outsider, an outcast. Maybe you're sitting there in church today thinking, I'm not really sure I should be here. If people knew my history, people knew me as I know myself, they wouldn't want me here. And God, who knows everything, well, I'm surprised he hasn't struck me down. Maybe that's how you're feeling about yourself. Because you're such a mess and you've got such a history. And Jesus says a wonderful thing when 
he's challenged on this in verse 16. When he heard this, verse 17, he said to them, these are the people who are criticizing him. Those who are well have no need of a doctor, but just those who are sick, they have need of a doctor. I've come not to call the righteous, the people who think they're absolutely fine with God, but sinners. If you go down the road either way to A&E in one of the local hospitals, and you interviewed the people in the waiting room at A&E and said, well, why are you here today? Well, they're not there because they think they're just fine. They're there because they think they've got a problem that needs fixing. Now, most of us don't feel the need to go to A&E most weeks, most months, maybe even most years. And that's great if that's the case. But the problem is if we feel that way morally and spiritually, we see no need to go to God for help, I'm just fine. No need to go to God for forgiveness. When you mention that God is a God of justice and that we'll all face God's judgment one day, the response is, well, that, that's not a problem. I'm confident that God will accept me. Well, one of the ways that God works in our hearts to change us is to remove that confidence and to help us to realize that there's no way God will accept me. He knows too much about me. He knows my heart. And yet, Jesus not only has the power to forgive me my sins, he loves to call sinners to follow him. He's the sin doctor. Now, the religious policeman didn't like it. What do you feel about the suggestion this morning that your greatest need is the forgiveness of sins? Where do you stand on this issue? Has God convinced you yet? Or are you yet to be convinced? Let me finish just with this encouragement from the text. You know, the change of mind that convinces you that actually it is your greatest need, it can happen in a single day. Levi was just going about his business, doubtless making a handsome profit, sitting in his tax booth. I don't know what he was doing. Was he calculating tax? Was he calculating his profits? And then Jesus sticks his head through the window, so to speak, and says, Levi, follow me. And he did that very day. And maybe Jesus is saying to you, you, follow me today. And you say, oh, well, I'm, if you knew me, God wouldn't really want me messed up as I am. Ah, oh, there's good news. You know, Jesus loves to call sinners to follow him, and we're all sinners. And forgiveness of sins is within his power, which is wonderful when we come to realize that our greatest need is the forgiveness of our sins. Let's pray. Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven.
Our Father, we thank you that we can hear those words spoken into our lives by the Lord Jesus, who has the power on earth to forgive sins, who loves to mix with sinners and call them to follow him. Father, please help us never to write anyone off and not to write ourselves off, but to rejoice in your forgiveness for the whole of our lives and to grow in our appreciation over the years for the glory of your name.